Welcome to the first episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup of 2022. In this episode, we are going to talk about a close encounter between Starlink satellites and the Chinese space station. But first, let's talk about China confirming Phase Four of its lunar exploration plans. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. So in a recent interview to Chinese national television, the deputy director of the Chinese National Space Agency, Wu Yanhua, revealed that the phase four of China's lunar exploration plans had been confirmed. And just for some context, China has performed five lunar exploration missions today: the Chang'e one all the way to the Chang'e five, and these were basically subdivided into three phases according to China's way of categorizing these missions. So there was basically phase one, which aimed at orbiting and mapping the moon, and this was performed by the Chang'e one and two in 2007 and 2010. And then there was phase two, which aimed at landing two rovers, and this was accomplished. By the Chang'e three and four in 2013 and 2018, respectively, and finally there was Phase three with the Chang'e five, which was a sample return mission and which was accomplished at the end of 2020 and the very first weeks of 2021. So this first phase, confirmed by Wu Yanhua, refers naturally to the next missions: the Chang'e six, the Chang'e seven, and the Chang'e eight missions. Now, these missions were already discussed in China multiple times in the past, so they don't really come as a surprise. But I think this is a good opportunity just to bring up these topics and sort of sum up everything we know about the next upcoming missions. So all three missions will take place in the next ten years, according to Wu Yanhua. And the first mission, rather unexpectedly, will be the Chang'e Seven rather than the Chang'e Six. And this spacecraft, the Chang'e Seven, will head towards the lunar South Pole, where are nobly located a significant part of the Moon's water resources under the form of ice. The Chang'e Seven mission will reportedly consist of an orbiter, a relay satellite, a lander, a moon hopper, and a rover. So that's a lot of things. Let's break that down a little bit. So the relay satellite is necessary, first of all, due to the lack of direct line of sight between the lunar South Pole and the Earth, and this is a technique that China is actually quite familiar with because they also used a relay satellite called Chechiao for the Chang'e Four mission, which landed also on the far side of the Moon. So that's for the relay satellite. Now for the hopper, the hopper will enable close-up exploration of the permanently shaded regions of the moon, called the PSRs, and these are basically craters on the moon which lie in darkness permanently. And it is believed that these are the craters that、um, have most of the water resources on the moon under the form of ice. And so this Chang'e Seven. Hopper will explore these regions, and it may or may not have some similarities with the Nova C mission that's planned by NASA, by Intuitive Machines, and the Arizona State University in 2022. And according to a post on Weibo by the Chinese space media Dianfeng Gaodi, the Chinese Hopper is designed by Shanghai Jiaotong University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in Shanghai. And this small spacecraft will be able to take off and land repeatedly, as well as displace itself. On solid ground, and I think one thing that's worth noting with the Chang'e Seven mission is the increased sophistication of the mission, where we see that you know it sort of aggregates a lot of technologies、um, that were demonstrated in previous Chang'e missions. So typically, you know, there's the orbiter from Chang'e One and Two, there's the lander and the rover from Chang'e Three and Four, there's the relay satellite technology that comes also from Chang'e Four, and there's also some new technologies that are being trialed, such as the Hopper. 
Now, according to a paper published at the 51st Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in 2020, the Chang'e 7 mission would carry a total of 23 science payloads. There would be two on the relay satellite, there'd be five on the orbiter, seven on the lander, four on the rover, and one on the hopper. And this mission is scheduled to be launched in 2024. So that's for Chang'e 7. And after Chang'e 7 comes the Chang'e 6 mission. And this mission was initially designed to be a backup mission of the Chang'e 5. And so this will be a sample return mission, and it will aim at returning samples from the South Pole Aitken Basin, which is one of the deepest lunar craters situated on the far side of the moon. And it will also reportedly carry a number of foreign payloads, um, I think notably from France, from Italy, from Sweden, and Russia, and possibly other countries as well. And finally, after Chang'e 7 and Chang'e 6 comes the final mission, Chang'e 8. And this is rather a mysterious mission. We don't really know what this mission will consist in, apart from the high-level understanding that this will be a backup mission for Chang'e 7. Now, according to Wu Yanhua in the CCTV interview, he mentions that the Chang'e 8 mission will, quote-unquote, will define a base model for the future ILRS station. The ILRS station being the Sino-Russian permanent lunar station that's planned for the 2030s. So that really doesn't help us much, but it does, um, I guess it suggests that they will be possibly testing and verifying a number of key technologies that will enable the ILRS, such as in-situ resources utilization, 3D printing with lunar regolith, extraction of water from the ice that's present in the South Pole, and possibly the generation of oxygen and hydrogen based on this water that's extracted now. Everything I'm saying here is really speculation. There could also be other types of experiments. And one that comes to mind comes from a suggestion that was done by Guo Lin Li. So Guo Lin Li is a chief engineer at the Chinese Academy of Space Technology, and she's really involved a lot in lunar exploration and in-situ resources utilization. And she had previously proposed a demonstrator for Chang'e 8 to produce oxygen from lunar regolith. So this is very different from extracting oxygen from water. Here, basically, there would be a robotic arm that would scoop up lunar regolith and use an electrolytic furnace to turn the various metal oxides that are um, in the regolith into metal components and oxygen. So again, these are just ideas that could be on Chang'e 8. And separately from all this information on the Chang'e missions, uh, it was also worth noting in the past week that Roscosmos announced that China and Russia would sign a new five-year space cooperation program agreement covering a period from 2023 to 2027. And this would include in this five-year plan, plans for setting up the Sino-Russian ILRS lunar station by 2035. And I think this agreement follows a previous one that expires this year that covered 2018 to 2022. And um, sort of as a final comment, I think it will be very interesting to watch how China and Russia in the coming years try to integrate uh, together their two lunar exploration plans, because currently they're very separate. You have the Chang'e missions on the Chinese side, you have the lunar missions on the Russian side, they're really planned separately, but the Chinese and the Russians have to sort of make their timelines and their plans and their projects converge to have something that's really, you know, Sino-Russian by the 2030s um, for the ILRS. So, Blaine, any, any thoughts on lunar exploration before we move to uh, Starlink? Well, just a fascinating time for sure to be covering lunar exploration. It sounds like a topic that's um, probably ripe for a deep dive episode of uh, from the Dongfang Hours. So we'll have to, to look into that. But in the meantime, if you've not tricked out our top eight trends from 2021 episode from last week, John does cover in a bit more detail the ILRS and its announcement, which is um, you know sort of quite related to 
to this um, fourth phase of, of the lunar program. So, yeah, really fascinating stuff going on on the, on the moon, as it were. But, um, yeah, so moving over to low Earth orbit. Um, so earlier this week, we saw quite a lot of media attention surrounding some comments that were made by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the 27th of December, with those comments made in regard to uh, a filing by China at the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, or UNOSA, uh, earlier in the month of December. And so earlier in the month of December, we saw China invoke what is called Article 5 of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty, stating that, I quote, state parties to the treaty shall immediately inform other state parties to the treaty or the Secretary General of the United Nations of any phenomena they discover in outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, which could constitute a danger to the life or health of astronauts. And so basically this document outlines two uh, relatively near misses between two Starlink satellites and the Chinese space station, which took place in July and October of 2021, respectively. And really, it was a quite public, uh, let's say, calling out by China um, of Starlink for having potentially put Chinese taikonauts in danger. I would point out that the Chinese space station was at that time occupied uh, by three taikonauts. And so again, having to do uh, maneuvers during these two instances, it was quite, quite significant. And so just to give a little bit more insight as to what happened in these two events that China describes in the UN document. So in the first one back in uh, early 2021, we saw the Starlink 1095 satellite initially orbiting around 555 kilometers before dropping to around 382 kilometers around the middle of 2021. And on July 1st, uh, what China calls a, quote, close encounter occurred between the China space station and Starlink 1095, with the CSS conducting an evasive maneuver to avoid the spacecraft. And so a similar situation then occurred in October of 2021 with the Starlink 2305 satellite, with China noting that the satellite was continuously maneuvering, the maneuver strategy was unknown, and the orbital errors were hard to be assessed. And so basically a pretty strongly worded document by China. And I think moving forward, it's going to be very interesting to see how this really continues to play out. China, I would point out, is one of a very small number of countries that's really going to be launching thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit over the coming handful of years. And so this kind of creates a delicate balance in terms of just China's own self-interests as it relates to things like um, you know, risk of orbital collision. Uh, so on the one hand, obviously, China needs to prioritize the safety of its Taikonauts. They need to prioritize other in-space infrastructure that China has launched. And therefore, they're going to really want to forcefully encourage Starlink and the U.S. to act responsibly and to exercise caution as it relates to low Earth orbit. Uh, that being said, I think Chinese constellations are going to pose a similar risk to humans and to infrastructure in space, and they're going to require a lot of different efforts to manage these constellations. And so any standards that China decides to, you know, to lobby to impose upon you know, Western constellations or, or anyone in, in low Earth orbit, um, those are likely going to impact future Chinese constellations as well. And so I think, you know, in general, the Chinese government tends to err on the side of, of more conservative and relatively more long term oriented, which would point towards the, let's say, stricter regulations now and also stricter regulations for Chinese constellations moving forward uh, camp. Um, I would also point out that, you know, China might have an interest in seeing Starlink develop less quickly relative to a Chinese competitor. So we may then see, again, a, additional incentive for um, stricter rules in the short term, even if it might mean, you know, stricter rules for Chinese constellations in the longer term as the kind of, um, you know, the second or third or fourth horse in this race at the moment. Um, you know, China would certainly have some incentive to try to slow down uh, you know, Starlink at, at the moment. Um, so I think the last point that I would mention about this whole debacle is about a week later, we saw some statements uh, from ESA and from um the, but by the head of ESA, Joseph Ash, 
Bakker. I'm never very good at pronouncing his surname. I apologize to uh, to Joseph in the unlikely event that we have the pleasure of him listening to our podcast. But digressing, um, so he had made some statements about um about Starlink in low Earth orbit and you know the risk that it poses to different infrastructure. And Elon Musk was publicly very dismissive of these statements, basically saying that there's room in space for tens of billions of satellites, and this is not a, going to be an issue. And the timing of this is interesting in the sense that again, it really comes on the heels of this issue with the Chinese space station, and that was partly what. Aschenbacher's uh, comments were regarding. Um, you have a situation where I think Elon Musk, who up to this point has not been very dismissive of Chinese leadership because he seems to know reasonably well how to play that political game, um, he's now getting to a point where sometimes the interests of Starlink or SpaceX or other Musk-related companies are, if not directly contradicting Chinese national interests, I mean, they're, they're starting to create some issues. I mean, when you have Chinese taikonauts that are having to perform evasive maneuvers. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch moving forward uh, to what extent, you know, how does this interplay play out? Because at the end of the day, I think Elon Musk and, and, and other entrepreneurs of, of his ilk, you know, they have a tendency to be rather dismissive and openly critical of of regulators, of, of, of politicians in Western countries. And I think that Elon Musk, as I said, has towed a quite fine line in China in this regard. And, and I think China has a lot more of a capability to let's say clamp down if Elon Musk decides to be publicly ad adversarial towards the Chinese government or towards their, their space program or what have you. So again, I think it's going to be a very interesting interplay to watch moving forward. You know, how, how do Elon Musk and China coexist? So anything from your side, John, on uh, on that? So I think it's interesting to note also how, how, you know, threats of collision in orbit can get a little political as well, because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, China has sternly rebuked some of the maneuvers by Starlink satellites in orbit that has uh, threatened the Chinese space station, as you've described. But, you know, they've been very silent on the Russian anti-satellite test that took place a couple of weeks ago. And similarly, we have the U.S. that condemned very strongly the Russian anti-satellite test, as well as the uncontrolled re-entry of mm -hmm. a Long March 5B first stage, I believe, sometime last year. But, you know, the U.S. also performed an anti-satellite test sometime, I believe it was in 2008, in an operation called burnt frost where they shot down one of their satellites as well. So, you know, it seems like there's a little bit of a criticize your adversaries, but, you know, keep silent on your allies. So uh, quite a bit of politics, I believe, in all these discussions of collisions in, um, in low Earth orbit. Indeed. And I guess one thing that I did not take the time to check and I, I should do after this episode is, you know, was there an official U.S. response to the Chinese U.N., um, you know, invoking of Article 5? You know, did, did the U.S. have anything or, or to the, the, the MOFA press conference? Was, was there any response from the U.S. saying, uh, you know, officially saying, oh, well, you know, this, this is what we do or don't think we need to do in terms of regulating our, our companies in low Earth orbit? But, um, yeah, definitely always fun to see this get a little bit political. Um Anything else, John, from your side? On, uh, this week? I'm okay. Cool. All right. So just a couple of administrative points. A special thanks to our most recent patrons who bought us some coffee on buymeacoffee.com slash hour. that being Fat Fox, Jacqueline, and Max. Uh, a special shout out to our good friends at spacewatch.global and GoTikonauts, two great sources of space industry news. And just a quick reminder that if you like what you hear or are, are watching, uh, to comment or subscribe or like or otherwise leave a review. We do read the reviews and we've gotten some excellent feedback, uh, in particular on the audio version of the podcast from some of the reviews. So we're always happy to see you take the time and, um, you know, it, it can help improve the content. So, yeah, um, that being said, that's all from my side. So thanks very much for listening and uh, have a good week. Thank you very much for tuning in.